Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We are speaking with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, about the Second Amendment. I mean, realistically, uh, a, a state could make some kind of rules regarding driver's license that were completely and totally onerous, that it only applied, uh, or that its citizens could pass, but would be a little bit tough for other citizens. And when you came to the border, if you didn't meet their uh, driving requirements, whatever they decided, you'd be turned back or say, I'm sorry, your license is invalid in the state. Uh, And and that, that obviously would be ridiculous. Yeah, so that gets back to this principle that I suggested to you, and that is that when a government jurisdiction chooses to intrude upon rights that are constitutionally guaranteed, uh, such as the right to bear arms, or for that matter, the right to drive a car, um, the states or the federal government, whoever is proposing to intrude, has to meet these burdens. It has to show there's a compelling reason. It has to show that what it's proposing to do is going to satisfy uh, what the problem is going to resolve the problem. And it has to show that it couldn't have resolved the problem some other way. Um, and that's the, that's the rubric. That's the framework that's going to apply when we talk about driver's licenses. And when we talk about guns in the case of driver's licenses, if some state were to impose onerous restrictions on the right to drive, uh, the courts might decide, I would guess would decide if the district restrictions were sufficiently onerous that this is a violation of, of the federal government's right to regulate interstate commerce. Um, you can't ha- obviously have interstate commerce if you restrict the, the means by which people can transport themselves and goods and services across state lines. In the case of guns, uh, it could be a state violation of the Second Amendment. So the courts will have to make those decisions. And while the courts may give us some guidelines, a lot of these decisions are going to be made case-to-case and will depend upon just how draconian the restrictions are that the various jurisdictions propose. And that indicates that what the courts can do in a case like Heller and McDonald is they can lay down broad principles, but it's very difficult for the court to come up uh, with rules that will resolve every one of these complex cases, and that's why we're going to see lots more litigation. So let's get down to the, the really the basic topic of today is we have seen some, obviously, some mass shootings. Uh, they always grab headlines. They almost always are in soft targets, gun-free zones, and the like. Uh, and every time it happens, there's a new, new cry for gun control. 
And the problem is that nothing that has been proposed really addresses the root issue. That's because the people who are, who are proposing gun controls really have another agenda. They do indeed. Um, and I think, you know, we have to put this in perspective for starters. And by putting it in perspective, I mean we have to treat this, this risk of mass shootings as what it really is, not what the media uh, portrays it as being, or what the anti-gun folks portray it as being. So the Department of Education reports that there are 50 million kids attending public schools in this country, and they attend public schools for an average of a half a year, 180 days a year. Now, since Columbine, and that's 19 years ago, almost to the day, there have been 200 students shot to death during school. Now, if you do the math, the likelihood of a given student being killed by a gun in school on a given day is roughly one in 614 million. So it could be your kid, but to, again, to put this in perspective, your child faces a much higher risk traveling to and from school than getting shot in school, a much higher risk catching a potentially deadly disease in school, a much higher risk suffering a, a life-threatening injury playing interscholastic sports. In fact, about 120 times more kids are shot outside school than in school. So we overestimate the risks associated with these mass shootings. I mean, look at Parkland here in Florida, where I uh, live at the moment. 17 kids are killed at Parkland, uh, at the high school in Parkland. 17 kids are killed in downtown Chicago every two weeks. So we, we really have to understand just what portion of gun-related violence is represented by these mass shootings. And as it happens, it's a very, very small portion. It does, of course, focus the mind because these atrocities are so horrible and because these are defenseless kids that are getting shot. But there are defenseless kids getting shot in virtually every major city here in the United States on a daily basis. And those deaths dwarf the number of deaths. Again, 200 kids since 1999. 200. We get thousands of killings in the United States every single year by guns. So we need to focus where the real problem is, and that's downtown, inner city, mostly gang-related and drug-related violence, gun-related violence. You really have to wonder, of course, although I don't really wonder, why is this not front and center uh, media coverage? Well, you know, the media focuses on news that uh, their readers are going to find interesting. And uh, what's interesting is what doesn't happen very often. So when 17 kids are being killed every two weeks in Chicago, there's nothing unusual about that. It's horrible, but sad to say it's not unusual. When 17 kids get killed at a high school in Parkland, Florida, that's unusual. And so the media uh, focuses on that, and the readership responds accordingly. And we come away with it. Uh, I don't mean to trivialize 17 deaths in Parkland High School, but by no means do I mean that. But what we come away with is a misconceived notion of where the problem really really lies. And so we begin focusing, for example, 
on AR-15s uh, because that's the rifle that was used in Parkland. But, you know, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of gun-related deaths have nothing to do with rifles, nothing to do with AR-15s. Because criminals use handguns. Handguns are, are less expensive. They're much easier to conceal. And AR-15s, which is what the media is focused on, plays almost no role in this country in terms of gun-related violence. And yet that's our focus. And it's most unfortunate because it leads us into solutions that are not going to solve the problem. So when you look at all this, what, what do you think uh, would be common sense solutions to this issue? Well, um, let's look at uh, each one of these uh, current uh, proposals that have been bandied about. Uh, the first one is, uh, seems like a no-brainer. Let's, that is, let's keep people on the terrorist watch list from getting guns. Um, what seems obvious isn't quite so simple because we do have a constitutional requirement for due process. So the terrorist watch list contains about 800,000 names. We have a smaller subset called the no-fly list. contains about 110,000 names. The problem is that these lists are secretive. They're error-prone. They're unaccountable. They're discriminatory. And individuals can be included on these lists based solely on suspicion or hunch. Uh, There are government guidelines that actually state uh, that concrete facts aren't necessary. So unless and until we tighten up the lists and provide adequate means to challenge and correct mistakes, I don't think we should be arbitrarily denying everyone on the list the right to own a firearm and defend themselves. And that's especially true because the practical effect of doing that is going to be negligible. You know, you know the GAO reports that there were 23 million background checks uh, in, a, in a recent year. And of those, 244 were on the no-fly list. 244 out of 23 million. That's one one-thousandth of 1%. And 90% of the persons on the no-fly list, they're already disqualified from buying guns because they're not citizens and they're not lawful residents. So what seemed like a very simple and straightforward proposal, keep guns away from people on the terrorist watch list, uh, really isn't so simple and straightforward. So we can address each of these if you like. They, you know, the, the ones that are making the the rounds in the media are banning high-capacity magazines, uh, assault weapons bans, um, a buyback uh, program, um, getting getting rid of uh, um, uh, getting uh, smart guns, uh, getting the background checks extended to cover private sales at uh, at uh, gun shows, and uh, importantly. Uh, doing something about the problem of mental illness. So each of these is, uh, I think, uh, worthy of discussion, and I'll, I'll let you decide which of those you'd like to pursue. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We'll be right back after this quick break. We are continuing our discussion with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, about the Second Amendment. Well, I think... One of the basic problems with all of these discussions is that criminals don't obey the law. I mean, that's why they're criminals. So any laws that you put into place, anyone who wants, who is a criminal is going to get whatever he needs to commit a crime. Um, so 
how, what, do you, what would you think of a proposal that if you commit a crime, a, felon, a, a crime, a felony with a gun, that you have added on time on the sentence just for doing it with a gun? What effect would that have? I think some states have that, and I think uh, it's, it makes sense. So you want to deter, you know, you come up with this proposition. Somebody who's not deterred by a law that says you can't murder is hardly going to be deterred by a law that says uh, you, you can't have a gun. <laughs> so uh, it is true, as you say, that uh, that criminals are going to get their guns, um, and they're going to get their guns even if we have gun control laws in effect, and that's been proven over and over again. And that there doesn't seem to be a heck of a lot of correlation, in fact, between the number of guns that we have uh, in circulation and, uh, and the number of uh, and crimes. You know, the crime figures uh, peaked in the early 1990s, and they're down very, very substantially uh, since that time. Uh, gun homicide has declined by half since 1990s, and overall gun crime victimization is down by three-fourths, and even the school shootings are down. And during that same period, our gun supply grew by 80 million guns, and there's now more than one gun per person uh, in the United States. So the, the guns are way up, and the gun killings are, are way down. It's it suggests that it's not simply the number of guns in circulation. The problem is who it is that's getting guns and what they're doing with it. So, yes, I think you know, that idea of increasing the sentence for crimes committed with uh, with guns is, is a perfectly valid idea and one that some states are now looking at. What about uh, assault weapon bans, high-capacity magazine bans? Uh, you know, in some states, uh, uh, automatic or semi, not automatic, but semi-automatic rifles are allowed for hunting now. So they're perfectly legal now for hunting. So what would be the... Well, it, yeah, let's take the uh, high-capacity magazines first, and then we'll talk about assault weapons, so-called assault weapons. So, you know, I can imagine uh, back in the Watts riots, if you were a Korean shop owner, uh, that you might need a high-capacity magazine to protect your store and your family. Um, I can also imagine there there are multiple victim killings, like in Parkland, uh, where maybe innocent lives could have been saved if high capacity magazines had been effectively uh, banned. Uh, you know, so you have to ask yourself which is the weightier concern, and that's where this principle of government has the burden is important. Government has to demonstrate that the benefits of banning high capacity magazines would exceed the costs. And if the government could make that demonstration, I have no doubt that such a ban would survive a Second Amendment uh, court challenge. But government hasn't made that case. And, and there are a lot of reasons why. First of all, homemade magazines are very easy to assemble. Uh, secondly, you can easily, murderers can readily reload the second or third magazine in a, in a matter of seconds. Um, there's, and third, and I think most important, there's no way to confiscate millions of these high-capacity magazines that are now uh, in circulation. And then finally, there are a lot of those existing semi-automatic pistols that are configured for 10 to 15-round magazines. So if you had any ban on any size less than 15 rounds, that would encounter enormous resistance from the gun community. So, you know, given that, I'm not aware of uh, any situation where actual or potential victim, civilian victim, has fired more than uh, 15 rounds in self-defense. I am aware that magazines greater than 15 rounds have been used in some of these uh, mass killings. So that might be sufficient evidence if it were brought to a, 
um, legislature and then tested in court that might be sufficient evidence to justify a 15-round limit, particularly if the gun controllers would offer the gun rights community something in return, some quid pro quo. I I don't think a capacity limit is going to work on magazines, but I do think it might be worth giving in on that point, allowing for a 15-round limit, let's say, if you could get, for example, interstate sales of handguns, a very important thing that's not now allowed. You cannot buy a handgun except in the state where you uh, reside. And that's an outrageous infringement on your rights. Uh, so I think if there was some quick pro quo involved, uh, that maybe we could come to some uh, compromise proposal. But I don't think government has met its burden in justifying this, you know, uh, this type of regulation. You know, the problem, though, that, that really presents itself is that once you let one, one millimeter of regulation in the door, you know that more is going to follow. And I think that's the argument you hear over and over again. And unfortunately, I think historically it's proven to be true. Yeah, and uh, we had just a few days ago a perfect example of that. Uh, The NRA uh, has cited for many years a pronouncement by Pete Shields, who was a co-founder of the Brady Center for Prevention of Handgun Violence. And the quote goes like this. The first problem is to slow down the number of handguns being sold. The second problem is to get handguns registered. The final problem is to make possession totally illegal. So there's proof, says the NRA, that liberals just want to get rid of our guns. And they really do want to kill the Second Amendment. Now, interestingly, that narrative had traction justifiably, because that's, after all, that's, that's what this guy said. So that narrative had traction among hardcore gun rights people. But the Heller case actually diffused that argument, because the Heller case affirmed that the Second Amendment is here to stay, and it secures a fundamental individual right. And then, just a few days ago, comes former Justice Stevens, former Supreme Court Justice for many years, the intellectual leader of the liberal wing of the court. And he breathes new life into this NRA uh, storyline. So what better evidence is there that the left really does want a gun-free America? Here's this liberal icon, Justice Stevens, and he calls for a repeal of the Second Amendment, a really stupid proposal that, first of all, will never be implemented. Remember that open carry is allowed by 40, 44 states in their own state laws and constitutions. It would never be implemented. Secondly, if it were implemented, it would incite riots, I think, even greater than, than the reversal of Roe v. Wade would incite. And it would have almost no effect if it were implemented, because the Second Amendment does not prevent states from enacting certain reasonable regulations. And repeal of the Second Amendment would not prevent states from allowing things like assault weapons or high-capacity magazines if they wanted to. So it's really state law that draws the wide limits. It's not the Second Amendment. It's state law that so-called calls the shots. The purpose of the Second Amendment is to prevent government from constructively banning a large class of weapons that are in common use for lawful purposes. That's what they tried to do in D.C. until Heller, 
That's what they tried to do in Chicago until McDonald and perhaps in a few other localities. And that's what would happen again if the Second Amendment were repealed. And that's why the NRA's slippery slope argument still resonates with millions of gun owners. And Justice Stevens just put his foot in his mouth and proved the NRA's point. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man, I get joy in everything, everything. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning.